a husky, <laughs> a Siberian husky dog just wandered through the kitchen. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, Reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And we're in the kitchen. This is probably one of the... How many episodes do we have still in the kitchen, you think? I'm going to put the over-under at six. We'll have to. We'll have to change our intro to... I know because I don't know. Live from the kitchen, live from the. I don't know what room. Yeah, I haven't secured another place to live yet, so I don't <laughs> know what it's going to be. It could be our new favorite restaurant that we found in Charlotte. Yeah, we could be coming live from a booth. Hashtag Greystone Pub. <laughs> <laughs> we went out the other night. Our our uh, our couple dums got together and we went out for dinner and talked or whatever. And we ended up at this fish place, what I didn't care that much for. But after we left there, we went to uh, a bar. And it was like, I think it's probably the most comfortable Chris and I have felt in bars in a while. It was so fun because what what it was, was in our town, our hometown of Charlotte, uh, a a big part of the entertainment district has turned into uh, catering to millennials. And it's Uh a lot of breweries and a lot of these hipster bars. Speakeasy, stuff like that. So this bar, which used to be a family diner for like 40 years, like one of those Greek diners Uh um, that serves like, you know, late night food, have tried to keep up with the times and they did their own conversion. And I don't think anybody's going in there. (laughs) And Henry and I just went in there and we're like, we thought it was closed. And it just At felt first. great to us because it looked totally wrong for millennials. Like, no millennial <laughs> yeah, is going to go in there. But some people did show up. But nobody, like, no, yeah, nobody not, that I think they're trying to They attract. didn't get the place. I mean, it wasn't hammered by people for sure. No, but it was great. It was like Henry and I were like, this might be the new home yeah, like, pe- of yeah, 80s music a, exposed. <laughs> no, like, I think we could legitimately take our show. I mean, did there. you see there were two people that snuck in and used the ping pong table and didn't even yeah, buy a drink? I I figured we could do the show in there if we bought two drinks. They would just let us sit there all night. We could set up on the ping pong table. Right. <laughs> they they might shut down the um, the jukebox for us for I don't know two hours. Yeah, if we buy a drink. Yeah, it seemed like they were really desperate to get people to buy a drink. So here's your plug, Graystone Pub. <laughs> I'm going to put it out there. We gave you a plug. Awesome. Anybody in Charlotte, go to this place and buy drinks from them, will you? And speaking of plugs, Henry, let's go real quick through all the ways that people can reach us. Yes, if you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us. Yeah, and you can also listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher. And, um, of course, share it with your friends there. That would really help. You can chat us up on Twitter at 80s Exposed or on email at 80s Music Exposed at gmail.com. Or reach either Henry or I individually on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at TCI Duke. That's T C I D U K E. And Henry's Twitter handle, that's me, is at Hank G. 
That's right. And so uh, we also have a Patreon account that we just recently started. You can go to www.patreon.com forward slash join forward slash 80s music exposed and you can find out all about it there. And Henry, tell them how we picked the records. We picked the records using a method called RAGS, R period, A period, G period, S. And you know what? If you want to know what RAGS is, you got to listen to the, one of the episodes. There will be a magic episode in which we do explain. I think there's actually two. It can be like Where's Waldo? Yep. Go back and check it out. You'll find out. But we do pick the records from a method that we think is tried and true. And Henry... Before we talk about records, let's talk about some significant events from the month that was June of 1981 to get people in the mood. Drum roll. This is foreplay. This is foreplay for listening to records. Raiders of the Lost Ark debuts on June the 12th. This is the biggest one. Okay. This was the one when we started the show. I was like, this is why we do significant events. I can't wait till I can say this is the month that Raiders fucking came out. Do you remember that month? Uh, I mean, I remember the... I don't know if I remember the month. I remember being really excited. I remember seeing uh, the guy that used to be Han Solo in a movie. Right, because by and the time Raiders came around, it was still a thing. Like, how many times have you seen Empire? Or how many mm-hmm. times have you seen Star Wars? So Raiders was like... the movie, Like, it was summertime. Mm-hmm. You know, the summer blockbuster. And I'm like... I've got to see Raiders three times in this first week. And everybody talked about the guy's face melting off. Oh, that yeah. was a thing. And, and then the joke where uh, the guy has the, does the, bull, or the karate moves and stuff and uh-huh. he just shoots him, and that's hilarious. So, yeah, that was, that's, the big, that's the big significant event. Um, also, Henry, Tom Snyder interviewed Charles Manson on the Tomorrow was this, Show. Was this on TV? Yes, Did it was. you see it? No, I don't remember it. I went back and found it on YouTube, and it's really strange. I don't know who's stranger, though, Charles Manson or Tom Did he have the, the swastika tattoo on his head? He did, but it was kind of like he hadn't been keeping it up or whatever, so it was just like a scar at that point. Oh, man. Um, I like There was one sequence, though, where Tom Snyder's asking him a bunch of questions and, and like trying to grill him, and he just in the middle of it, he says, what year is it? And Tom Snyder says, it's not important what year it is, Charlie. Answer the question. Yeah, uh, so he was getting points for treating Charles Manson bad. I just like how it's not important. Yeah, but you're like, either the guy is psychotic or or he's trying to play one on TV. But it was hilarious the way Tom Snyder just like, stop acting psychotic. AIDS is formally recognized by health officials in San Francisco. Yeah, we've already had... um, an AIDS significant event on a past episode, which really bummed us out, and here we are again. But, I mean, you can't talk about the 80s without talking about the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I think it colored things a lot. Yeah, I do, too. I think it it shaped a lot of what was to come, too. Mm -hmm. Also, Henry's going to be really happy about this next one. Steely Dan officially broke up on June 21st. I'm heartbroken. They finally decided to call it quits. (laughs) They hung it up. Those poor guys in Steely Dan. I can't believe it. uh, Anyway, guess who else started... In June of 1981. Who? Celine Dion. Oh, dear Jesus. That's when she went on TV at the age 13. So Steely Dan breaks up and Celine Dion starts. Uh-huh. Boy, it's the, the beginning seeds, of the end. The seeds <laughs> of whatever. <laughs> so those are the significant events of June, except for the records that came out, and we're going to talk about those now. So the first record we're going to talk about is called Season of Glass. And it's by Yoko Ono, and we're going to play the song No, No, No. 
this record pretty easy weird i i couldn't find it um i thought it wasn't on um itunes mm-hmm. it turned out it wasn't but then it was on youtube no problem that's what i where i found it right um i was very surprised at that you know what surprised me about it what? was the albums of hers that are on itunes uh-huh. are not it's anything that i would like and then this one i turned out to be like Holy shit! Yeah, it, I know. I know where you're going with this. So I went to Spotify and I and they have all the Yoko Ono records besides this. And I go searching for the album, right? Go to Wikipedia and all that, and start listening to it. And I'm like, why is it this? This seems like this would be the one. This would be your starter. This would right? be the one, yeah, because it's not near as inaccessible as any of her other records. This is your starter album for Yoko. And then let me say this, just to get us into it. I have never in my life heard a record the first time that just nailed all of the things that she was going through at the moment. I'm like sitting here going, this is serious artistic work. This is like... Everything about a person going through right. this situation, which, by the way, maybe only two or three the, humans on earth have ever gone through their husband being the biggest musician in right. the world, being murdered, and now I'm making a record six months later. It, it's, and the it's songs a, are well written. It's amazing. And, well, and well I, done. And we'll talk about this yeah. a little bit later. Okay. Um, but. I'm listening to the songs going, there's no way she wrote these songs. I I looked it up. I looked it up. Dude, I looked it up, and I said, she had help, she had help, she had help, she had help. I've got a theory. We'll talk about this at the end. I've got a theory about that. I don't know. But but back to everything about this record is raw, is poignant. Right. And then we've got got bit snippets of actual conversations that she. This is ahead. It's ahead of its time. We was doing that. We had snippets of a story that Sean, little tiny little Sean, who's our age, well, a little bit younger than us, in his early 40s now, um, talking a story that his dad uh, told. Yeah, and then you've got the the song where she's on the phone. Right. And then and then so I only listen to it as a cheat because I know we're not supposed to cover things that weren't on the original release. Uh-huh. But the song I don't know why, the demo version is on the re-release. Really? The demo version is a tape recorder. She just sat down the day after he died and she just sang the song. She just made it up in her head and sang it a cappella into this mic. That's almost the weird. The day right? after. 
And then, like, putting his glasses, his bloody glasses on the cover oh, of the you record. just stole my thunder. I was going to drop that in. The fuck wasn't this record more popular with a cover like that? I don't know. Was it not, is it not the best album cover you've ever seen? Not just I mean, the best. One of the it's best. not just art. It's, it's just like perfect. She turned it into art, but it's also like you you feel the pain because John Lennon meant something to everybody. Like right. we all felt like we knew him, and then you're sitting there going, "It was his iconic glasses. John Lennony glasses right there beside a glass of water, uh, with his blood still on it." And it doesn't. It works on this level of oh my god, John is really dead. But it also works on this level of. Why was an icon massacred? Yeah, yeah. Is this what we do in America so, to to icon? Like, it's always stuff. People at work, like, ask me, what do you do? Like, what, you know, what do you do for fun? So one of the things I do is I do a podcast with my friend, and we listen to records. And what do you do? Well, so right now I'm listening to this record by Yoko Ono. Their first reaction is, really? Yoko Ono? Even Beatles people. Well, no, Beatles like, people especially. So this is my okay. theory that I guess we ought to get into. What? And it's why we both went to Wikipedia right away to see if she wrote the songs. There is a predisposition of all Beatle people that, and this is the whole world basically, that she broke up the Beatles. She is yeah. the evil stepmom. I don't know if you saw the new documentary um, that's it's on Netflix. On, I haven't watched it. But basically it totally dispels that she was the reason. And in fact, Imagine would never have happened without her. I am even more now cemented after listening to this record that Imagine wouldn't have happened without her input because she's a goddamn good songwriter. Yeah. Think about this. She's writing in a style right there that she doesn't really ever write in again. She's basically trying to write songs that sound, to me, like they would be popular with John Lennon fans. I think, I mean, the most off-put, I think it's just because, I don't know if we just don't, I mean, I'll just say it. Is it her Asian accent? No. That has caused? Well, well, here's my one criticism of the record, which is I don't like her voice. But it's not a criticism like because it's she's Asian-American. It's just I don't like her voice. I love the record. Um, yeah. Sean, Sean Lennon, her son, was on Mark Maron's uh, podcast recently, and he was talking about this block mm-hmm. that people have with his mother because she's perceived... And maybe part of it is racial, but she's perceived as the person that broke up the Beatles. Yeah. So no one will give her credit. So right away, um, I think this album was kind of shunned. I also think that bias that we have, that unconscious bias of uh-huh. she couldn't have wrote these songs. It couldn't have been Yoko that wrote these songs. Let me go check Wikipedia and see who's helping her write these songs. Yeah, I mean, there's all of that is built into it because of how much everyone loved the Beatles and thought mm-hmm. they were going to go on forever, and she broke them up. Well, this was her highest charting album, from what I read. Like, it entered the Billboard. Wouldn't at, take much, though. A certain, yeah, she, she, was an art per, she was an art rock person. That's what her thing was. Still is. Still and, is, by the and, way. Um, and, and she was married to John, and John uh, uh, loved the way that she did her life and art and stuff and included... Uh, her in the albums, and, uh, and and that's what it was. And it's very obvious to me when I listen to this that she was a she is a true talent. If you're interested in this, I would highly recommend watching the documentary first because it will put her in such a new light. Do that, they talk about it? You can open it up. They don't need to. The, uh, the footage shows how she totally contributed and also changed his way of thinking. 
it's pretty pretty brilliant. I didn't want to say that I wrote this better in my notes than I said it, but this record I, I wrote is such an interesting document of a singular meta experience. Yeah, it's it's very meta in in that she's showing you the inside of what it's like to be her, whereas at the same time, hey puppy, how does that happen? Is that your you know anything about this? So a, a husky, <laughs> a Siberian husky dog, just wandered through the kitchen. <laughs> I've never sake. seen this dog before. I, I don't know how he opened the back door, but the back door is standing wide open. And I thought maybe it was like somebody coming home with a dog that you we didn't know about. But the dog was like night. Wasn't like. He could have just come in here and started biting, biting us or some shit. Uh, okay, so Yoko, what were you saying? Oh. Do you remember? I was talking about how it was a meta, a meta experience, but right. I, I, wanna, I, wa- I really want to hit home the point that it was a singular experience. I don't know that any other human being on Earth went through what she went through there. Yeah. Because he was arguably the most famous person on Earth at that point when he was murdered as she was standing right beside him and to document it less than six months later with this really open personal album was great so yeah. I, I really recommend it so I need to qualify what I say here um, it's definitely worth a listen it was definitely touching generally speaking I'm not that emotionally drawn to Yoko Ono's work for whatever reason um, I'm not but even I a person who couldn't call himself a Yoko Ono fan could hear the honesty and wonder why in the hell it's been buried. I don't, doesn't make any sense. There must be some reason why it's not streaming on major platforms or whatever. There's got to be some reason why we all don't know about, I mean, the, the album cover on its own would demands attention. The whole, you know, the whole do you thing know what, should be, a, yeah. The whole thing should be a behind the music because I can't think of another album that the backstory is as interesting to me as this. This is like when I when you tell somebody about, well, my favorite author wrote this book and he was high all the time and and he was fucked up on this and then somebody came in and tried to murder him. You know, like mm-hmm. all this great stuff going on and she nailed it with the album. I mean. Even if you don't like the music, yeah. this is such an interesting thing. Yep. And for somebody to have done it as well as she did is pretty... I, I guess there's a there's a, um, a modern album I kept comparing it to, which I, I should have wrote down because I don't remember the name. I hope you do. Um, there was a there's an indie artist that his wife died recently who wrote a record all about it. And it reminded me, because he was so open and honest and... You know, every song was about it, but it's talk, not. Talk about being forty and can't remember. It. He's like my guy. Yeah, I knew you were like you uh, loved him. I love the album too. It, the, the it's a band called Mount Erie. Mount Erie, right? And it's Phil Elverum, uh, who sung about his wife's death. Probably the saddest record I've ever heard. Right. But did you kind of get the same kind of feeling from this one? Uh, yes, but I felt like she was more positive than Phil was. I I feel like she was able to sit to. To find something redeeming, like you hear her talking about an Earth Mother kind of thing, and some redemptive stuff 
uh, in it. So uh, I was really impressed by that. Sure. She seems to be an incredibly resilient woman. That's the only thing that I could... That's the thing I got. I took away from it. Yeah. Like how... I mean, there's there's parts of the record in which she talks about how they've lived their life, you know, a certain a living in uh, stardom was is alluded to. I also want to mention that uh, I don't usually mention Pitchfork, but Pitchfork has this as one of the 200 best albums of the 80s, and this is one of those reasons I'm glad we do the show because I I've, I've never heard this record. I think I'd seen that album cover maybe Henry, but. I, it never registered that it was a Yoko Ono album. And why did I have to go to YouTube to find it? That is weird. Screwed up. That is weird. I, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Of. I am going to recommend this record. I will too. And uh, Henry, tell us about our next record. Next record we're going to talk about is an album by a band called The Psychedelic Furs. And it is their second album called Talk, Talk, Talk. Jones, and it was from the album Talk, Talk, Talk. Oh, sorry, yeah, man. No, no problem. Uh, so that's by the Psychedelic Furs. Uh, why don't you start on this one? So, Tell me what you think. Well, I think my opinion of the record is probably colored too much with, not too much, but a little bit, by the fact that I saw the Psychedelic Furs a little while ago, right? Saw them perform. Right. And so I, I wasn't intimately familiar. I went to see it not as like a full-on fan, but as a, I was curious. You know, you ever been to shows like that? Sure, yeah. Where you, you're not completely bought in, but you want to go out for the evening. These guys have a have a reputation. Let's go see. Let's go see. Are, are they still doing it, you know? <laughs> right. Like that. And it played as an oldie show, right? Um, I texted you about it. Right. We can be critical a little bit later, but... Um, this is their, This record was produced by Steve Lillywhite. Yes, it was. And uh, for those who don't know, Steve Lillywhite also produced records by bands like U2, The Rolling Stones, XTC, Dave Matthews Band, Peter Gabriel, Talking Heads, Morrissey, The Killers, The Pogues, David Byrne, Susie and the Banshees, Simple Minds, and Counting Crows. <laughs> So, I mean, this guy knew how to make records, right? I guess you could I say mean, that, yeah, right? I mean, this was probably in the early days. Um, so, I know that at the time, in 1981, they were, the psychedelic furs were sort of seen as possible competition with U2. And I don't know if this was the second album he did or the first of two. I know he did two of them. This is the first. 
Okay. So this is one of those records that I had to go back and listen to the one before it to get some point of reference mm-hmm. because everything I'm reading about it is That's what I was gonna how ask. much of a change it was from record one. I was going to ask you about that because I, I come, uh, my opinion comes to you having not listened to the first album and my perspective really centered on what I, Pretty in Pink, the song that's on this record. And maybe some odd here and there song, and, and maybe Love Spit Love from the 90s. Right. And so I was familiar with his voice. Um, so the first record is, is much more, this band sounds like they, they want to be Wire or um, right. Magazine. Like they're trying to be more, to me, it sounds more raw and like we're we're just mm-hmm. trying to be we're trying to fit into this whole post punk thing. So mm-hmm. this one kind of we didn't I, review it either, right? No, we, I don't we, think we it's got that. Through it. I don't think it's that good. Okay. And then on top of that, this one to me, I don't know how much of it is Steve Lillywhite because there's a lot more of a pop element I, to it. I think I was kind of going there because right. something, but this is all it just. I'm looking at it in hindsight. Well, my first where they ended up. take, because I have to say, at the time, I was aware of Psychedelic Furs, yeah. but I never I mean, was, was a fan. Yeah. Um, so I'm putting this thing on. Of course, Pretty in Pink starts, and I'm like, that's not right. That doesn't sound like, that's not right. Like, And then I had to look it up. So they actually re-recorded Pretty in Pink for the movie, which came out much later, I didn't know that they had such big fans, but the guy that made Pretty in Pink, is that a John Hughes film? Yeah, John Hughes. Like, basically was obsessed with the song, Pretty in Pink, and wrote the movie from the song. But now, when you, when you talk to everything that I've read from uh, Richard Butler, whom I think is, is one of the two killer attributes of the band, in my opinion... When I say killer, their best attributes. He's one of the two. Um, he said that John Hughes got the meaning of the song wrong, like, well, that, he, and that the underlying message in the song is not. Understood he probably by most did, people. but I, I, whatever he got wrong about it, he definitely was obsessed with the song. Mm-hmm. But I do kind of find it weird that he wanted him to re-record it. Yeah, that was weird. Um, they said that. Did you like it better? Um, uh, from the first record, or were you so sure. predisposed nope, to nope. the way it sounds from the soundtrack? I liked it better on the record. Okay, than I did the. I, they said that the guitar sounded out of tune too much on this version, but I liked it like that. Right, it definitely sounds like so, a different, a more rougher version. Um, and and uh, but I think he, his voice is singular. Right? Let me ask you another question: How did right. you get through? Because I, listening to this whole record, I kept going. How is Henry getting through the horn, the saxophone? They are the only guys that got horns right. I think Lily White knows how to do horns. So you're not, you like the horn? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sometimes, the, I, I don't know his name, Chris. Do you know his name? I should have looked it up. He's, um, I'm looking he may be now. the only guy, or one of the few guys that gets horns right. Like, on this, on this, on this one, you, you almost can't tell the difference between what what they put on there is a keyboard and what is a horn you know like they've got to equalize right to do horns you have to just i don't like the staccato high-end tweets that horns do i like you don't really like horns that sound like horns i guess that's my problem right (laughs) i like horns as long as you make them not sound like a horn yes the saxophone player by the way uh was 
his name is Duncan Kilburn, mm-hmm. and he also plays keyboards. So okay, that was so probably a bit of a blend. It could there. have been a it could have been an affected horn. I am the opposite of you, of course. Yeah. We've gone back and forth on this. Yep. I liked the horns on this, but I thought the horns were too understated. Mm. I like. If you're going to give me the horns, give me the horn. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like single saxophone stuff as opposed to like tower power, like yeah, triple horn. And, and you know he can still do that live. That guy. So he was still in the. He's still in the. Band I'm hoping song. it's that guy. Right. <laughs> Whoever they had was still doing it. Well, let me take a maybe a slightly different take than you on this album because I don't um, like this album, but I don't know that it's possible that I've ever met anybody. Or ever talked to anybody that really like I'm just, adores the psychedelic? First. I'm saying positive things. I didn't say I like the record. Okay, well, well, what I was going to say, yeah, is yeah. it doesn't really <laughs> register enough yeah. to me to be bad. It, they were always bland to me. It, like to me, it, this is the band I was comparing them to, and you know, that's I, why I just said it's the two. The two. It, he can sing, and the other guy I thought was a, handled the horns good. Right. So. That's, I kept trying to compare this band, in my mind, to a band that I love that I don't think you do, called The Fix. I, I like them. I don't love I feel them. like they swim in the same pond, but for some reason, to me, The Fix is infinitely more interesting. My problem with Psychedelic Furs is um, everything sounds right on what they're trying to do. I can't point out what's wrong, but it just doesn't do a lot Here's for what me. I think. Here's what I think. Even Pretty and The pink. truth of what they... Uh, I mean... I guess Richard Butler will never talk to me again if I say what I really think about the psychedelic furs. They, Were you talking to Richard Butler? Uh, no, but if he hears our podcast, he's going to get mad at me. Um, I think they were c- careerist dudes, and I think it's it's when you when a, a guy from the movies asks you to re-record your song because it's not good enough or the guitars are out of tune, that and you do it. You're kind of you've already you've already started bending, right? But by the same token, to, to what if, they want. If Richard Butler was talking to you now and went to Starbucks with you and bought you a cup of coffee, he'd be paying for it with pretty and pink money. <laughs> okay, <laughs> granted. <laughs> you want to know my opinion? I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing you. Uh, he's, he's, uh, I also believe that his moves were stolen, has been stolen by subsequent people. I think that Jarvis Cocker deliberately rips off Richard Butler. See, now I've never seen enough of Richard Butler to know, but that seems about right. The to big, me. the big glasses, the flamboyant moves. I, w- I will say, doing my uh, research, I was shocked to uh, find that there is a die-hard enough fan base that people pick apart his lyrics. Like, I can't imagine he is a great lyric writer, which I was shocked to no, find out. It's mostly, ne- I mean, he. There's some misogynistic type stuff in this on the record, right? You know, that speak, and I often wonder how. How many times we're going to visit this? Like, there was some solid misogyny, I guess. Right. Uh, or things that could be considered misogynist on these kinds of records. Right. So, well, I, it seems like this happens to me every episode. But when there's a record that I'm kind of just blah about or on the fence about, which is done kind of well, yeah. but not well enough for me to love, there's always another record in that episode that I think beats it over the head. And this is one episode that we're going to talk about a record later that I kept going. These two records are in the same yeah. sphere, but one of them is just—it's almost not fair. A hundred times better than yeah, this things one. aren't. Life isn't fair, right? So I am not going to recommend this record. Uh, they tried. Uh, yeah, I'm the same. 
And speaking of a record that we both, I think, are going to feel the same way about. Sometimes we accidentally talk about things not on the pod. <laughs> yeah, this Just one's going to be, I think we're both on the same, on the same wavelength with this one. Uh, this is an album called Breaking Away. Um, just like the movie. <laughs> Except not at all. Except not at all. <laughs> and it's by um, Al Jarreau. And this song is We're In This Love Together. It's like a diamond ring, it's a precious thing. And we never want to lose it. It's like a favorite song that we love. Every time we hear the music And we're in this love together We got the kind that lasts forever Do you realize that you have Al Jarreau on the back of your shirt right now? Oh, I do. Uh, wow, that, I thought you there's a to, lot of weird stuff happening. I think you're there. bullshitting me, man. You must be all about <laughs> this shit. That's a long story, but I do have <laughs> Al Jarreau on the back of my shirt. I saw you as you were getting it. I was like, there's um, Al Jarreau. I still hate this record, <laughs> and I hate Al I feel Jarreau. bad about talking about it because he's he's gone. He died in 2017. Well. But, and I guess I can say it now. This record fucking sucks. Well, I would ha- I would have to say this. Um, there are going to be records that we really hate, and I think the majority of them are going to be because we have to cover Grammy winners. So the, this the, this album won give three me, Grammys. Look, give me a. It, Al Jarreau won the listen- 1982 Grammy for Best <clears throat> Pop Vocal Performance, male. I, and he also won uh, album. Oh, nominated for Album of the Year, and it won Best Jazz Vocal Performance, Male. Well, I could have listened to a 30-minute album of farts, and I'd rather listen to that than... I'd rather rather listen to the worst, most poorly made album than the best of this type of music. I actually thought, Henry, when I realized we had to cover it because it won a Grammy. As I'm listening to it, I was looking down through the Grammy categories to see where is best Dennis music in a dentist it's, office male. It's because not, that's the only award it could have won. It's it, it's yacht rock, but it's even not worse, even it's the worst. Even worse it's than the yacht worst rock. Yacht, rock, yacht rock. And I'm an, follow, I'm, I'm a yacht rock you can't, connoisseur. So you know what I'm saying. Steely Dan is the best yacht rock. Okay, so this let's decide not. why it sucks. Is it the Unapologetically positive tack he takes all the time. Uh, that on top of the so milk toasty middle of the road that I can't believe jazz I, people are not mad that this it, was called jazz. The record is in, in Al Jarreau's entire fucking career. I'll say, unfortunately, it it speaks of a complete lack of ambition. All of it. Okay, so here's another reason why Al Jarreau sucks. The very first car accident I ever got into was to his biggest hit, 
which was the theme to Moonlighting. That was all over the radio. We'll walk by night, we'll fly by day. Moonlighting strangers. Pow! <laughs> and I hit somebody on Central Avenue. And so that song is forever locked into a traumatic spiral in my head. And anytime I hear the song Moonlighting, I think, I had a car accident once. It was bad. I got in trouble and I cried in the, in the car backseat. <laughs> So fuck you, Al Jarreau. I, say, I don't know how you got to blame Al for that, but yeah, fuck you, Al Jarreau. So <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say this is a not. If you like jazz pop, well, here's the thing. I was thinking you can though, do a lot better. I was about to you say do, if you like jazz find pop, Steely Dan or you something. should be more angry than I am about yeah. it. Yeah, I read a quote in one of the uh, reviews that I read of it that said this was the epitome of L.A. R&B in the early '80s. Screw that. Well, then who would want to be L-A-R-B? Did the cover of the record, like, here's the part, uh, here's something I guess we can talk about. You said, remember the cover of the record where he's got, he's got his sleeves rolled up like Miami Vice? Well, he's wearing, this, and he's wearing pastel. So that was the, the style, right? Well, he, well, this predates Miami Vice. He might have invented, I mean, Crockett, they might have used this look for the Crockett character on Miami Vice. <laughs> Which, if they did, great. That's the only credit I can give to this record yeah. because this was a hard one to get through. It really did feel like it was written to me to be played in a dentist office. You, have you ever got that feel when you're listening to something that goes, this is trying on purpose to be inoffensive? It's trying so hard to be appealing to uh-huh. everyone that it's appealing to no one. Mm-hmm. This is what this whole record felt like. And I was shocked to do some of the research to find out that people thought this was a home run. I mean, it was Grammy-nominated. I mean, people thought this was great. And I was just like, wow, this, this, was, this was tough. You, I think there are just two kinds of people in the world. There are people who like this kind of music and, and like all of what Al Jarreau did, and then other people who hate him and will never... He's the Kenny G of... It's it's Kenny G, yeah. It's it's in the same ballpark as Kenny G. You know. It's Billy Ocean before Billy Ocean. No, he's Billy Ocean kicks this guy's ass. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Billy Ocean. Thumbs either. down. I can't wait till we get there. Um, yeah. So I that's about as far as we need to go with this. We both hated it. And now for something completely different, mm-hmm. Juju by sure. Susie and the Banshees, and the song we're gonna listen to a snippet of is Spellbound. From the cradle bars comes a beckoning voice that's saying spinning, you have no choice. Choice you hear laughter. 
give up too much of what I think about this album in the, um, what's the word? Uh, in the way you yeah. pivoted from Al Jarreau to this record? Yes. Yeah, you probably did. <laughs> I added so much drama. <laughs> it's like I'm, fra- I'm I'm totally, like, I'm putting my finger on the scale <laughs> to this. Can I say what I think? Sure. Here without, That's what we're here I don't for. Want, if you want to say your thing. No, I'll say go it. ahead. This record blew my mind. Uh, I am not as familiar with Susie and the Banshees as you are. And we reviewed Kaleidoscope uh, from our, our month in the, the year 1980. And although I liked the record, I wasn't completely crazy about it. This record is like finding, I don't know, it's like when you listen to Strange Ways for the first time. I had I, not given it any attention. All the attention that I gave this kind of music was scooped up by Robert Smith, okay, and taken to The Cure somehow. And I had, by the time I even came to music, I was all about The Cure. Surely nobody can do this, you know, like them. Surely he owns all of what this is. Robert Smith has nailed down the corners of what, you know, this psychedelic kind of stuff can be. The first half of the record is Juju seems... Percussion-y, maybe? That's the, the way I felt about it. Budgie, uh, play, just awesome drumming. Uh, her vocals were fucking standout. Like she had, It was like a light year jump for me from Kaleidoscope to Juju. Then as you weed your way through all the, the for me, when you really, uh, when you weed your way down to the later tracks, the production is such that you hear his drums like straight up great. Her vocals are great. But like the, the background, John McGeoch. Yeah, I didn't know how to pronounce that either. I, I, I even did research and I'm forgetting. John McGeoch, he's the new guitar player in this band. As and, of Juju. Yeah, as of Juju. He was on Kaleidoscope. But he wasn't in the not band. Not really, yeah. He was just kind of working with them. Right. Uh, he, he was, was the, in, he had the, been in a band called Magazine. Yeah, yeah, the guitar player. And so, anyway, you know where I'm going with this. Yes. The the the, the bat. It's like they were they were like in. If it's a movie, then they are in the front, in in stark con- and he is the entire distortion field in the back. Right. I, I'm a convert. I'm a Susie and the Banshees fanatic now. Uh, I like John McGeoch more than anybody. I think he's. Every bit as good as Johnny Marr was, uh, in a completely different way. I think you, if you were a real detailed guy, you could probably put your finger on some stuff that Marr lifted from his world and from what he did. Well, I, w- I would like to say, doing my research, that Johnny Marr name drops Juju and John yeah. McKeogh, if that's how you say it. Also, uh, Radiohead were totally enamored with Juju, mm-hmm. still are, I guess. Suede. Um, a band that had a guitar player swayed um, Bernard Butler, who I was transfixed with in mm-hmm. the 90s. He was totally obsessed with um, John McKeog. And also, surprisingly, um, Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan name drops Juju a yeah. lot as an important album. I would say this, Henry, it was fascinating to me to go from the month before listening to Faith mm-hmm. by The Cure to listening to this record. And hands down to me, this is the better record. Um, I had forgotten. I guess I'm one of those, I was a Susie fan, but not, like, I forget about them sometimes. That's my problem. Well, I mean, I, I think I, when I finally learned of them, 
they weren't like the top of this genre of music. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, I I just kind of neglected them. Right. You know? Right. This album to me is like an 80s classic. Like Mm -hmm. it should be, like you said, Strange Ways. Like it should be up there on a pedestal with Strange Ways and The Queen Um, is Dead. It's wonderful. Um, Budgie is light years beyond what you would expect (laughs) drumming to be in an indie post-punk band. It's like they went pro, like... Well, the drumming Bam. right off the bat I, reminded me of what I feel like they might have been going for with Adam and the Ant, but didn't pull off. Because this mm-hmm. guy sounds like a powerhouse um, African like drum circle by himself. And then, yeah, John, the John McKeon guitar is just... Now, and so I got stuck in a black hole today. I, like, I guess i got to go find magazine. I guess i got to go find... Um, this other band that McGee, because apparently I'm a big John McGeeoch fan now. Well, um, Susie, Susie Sue says she attributed the reason this record works so well to the fact that they took this material out and toured it mm-hmm. for a year and a half before recording it instead oh. of the other way around. So they wrote the songs and then honed, honed them, actually opening for The Cure mm-hmm. um, as they went around and then recorded them after. And she said... Or, excuse me, Budgie said that by the end of that process, it actually felt to them like a concept record. Mm. Like all the songs fit in the way that a concept record would fit, and that they'd never actually had that happen before, except with this record. I don't know why this record is not as well known, uh, even as a Susie and the Banshees record. Um, I think Kaleidoscope gets more attention. Um, but this one, I think, I think this is, one crushes it. Like, I do too. Right? But it, like, I was running when I first, you know, we started running together and do our exercise. And we, I put on records while we're doing it. So the first half of the record was great because I could run to it. And then at some point, like, I had this physical response to that music. It's like it was, it was like the first time you listened to My Bloody Valentine or something like that for me. Right. And I just had a moment. I, was like, I don't have very many of those at my age. Right. Like this blissful, like, it's like this guy reached out from the past and grabbed me by the, by the, you know, the lapel and said I was here. And it was, and it's another one of those reasons that I like doing this show yeah. for personal reasons because now I have a guy yeah. that I put up there with uh, the guy from The Pretenders and Johnny yeah. Marr and like I gotta go, like you said, and I gotta go listen to magazine now. He has this endearingly heartbreaking story that I can love. He died at the age of 48. Um, he uh, quit music and started having a midlife change of career as a caregiver. Really, Bef- I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't before look he into di- that. before he died in his sleep. There's um, and right before I came over here, um, I found a BBC documentary on um, it's audio. It's in about six parts on YouTube, uh, and and I'm going to listen to every one of it. Everybody loves it. It was about him. Yeah. Oh wow, that's great. Booze. Boo- I heard two different stories. Um, I heard that he drank a lot. And on a promotional tour for the the record, came back in bad shape, and they fired him. The other story is that he had personal problems and quit. So you know, yeah, it's, believe it's it's one of those. And the last I heard, but he died in '04, and he was trying to do some uh, soundtrack work at, at some point. But I'll always love him now because he gave he gave that beautiful freaking record, and. Um, and life was not ever easy for John Bjork, it seems. So, 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to definitely recommend this record. I think it's... um, It's fucking amazing. It's almost seminal to (laughs) understanding the 80s, and I'm glad that I went back and found it again. Me too. I'm so glad I was given the chance to hear it, and it's a big favorite now. All right, so uh, Henry, our last record that we're going to cover is um, by a band called Duran Duran, Mm -hmm. and the album is called Duran Duran. Um, And the song we're going to play is Girls on Film. being interrupted by a stray dog wandering through the kitchen. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Duran Duran? Um, it, it's hard um, because I did listen to this after I heard um, Juju, so it's hard to judge these guys fairly, I suppose. I, in my mind, all of Duran Duran started with Rio, right? <laughs> um, because it was so ubiquitous. It was like 1982 and it, it was like hit after hit after hit. It was Simon Le Bon. It was their, they had a very well honed sort of image with um, high fashion and all of that stuff. But there was this record that came before, this one in 1981 that had um, hits. One of them was Planet Earth. Did you hear that song yes. back then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what was the other one? Girls on Film. Gir- right, and that one, Girls on Film. So I think in order to like Duran Duran, you kind of. You have to embrace Simon LeBond's voice, don't you think? I I have a totally different feel, so keep going with that. I'm, I can see what you're saying, though. They are so unabashedly pop, right, that it's difficult for me to take them completely seriously. Like, they, legi- they seem to deliberately avoid overt political stuff. They were not always an amazing pop band, obviously. So this is this being their first one. It wasn't until Rio where the, the world could say, hey, they were that. It's escapism. I mean, it, this band is, for me, an escapism band, pure and simple. And I think that's a particular aesthetic. Um, where I'm going to take it is I'm going to start right there. Because mm-hmm. that, to me... So first of all, um, I knew about Duran Duran from the very beginning because Girls on Film was one of the first videos that I saw on MTV. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it was the first time, and maybe it was the first time ever, that MTV said when they debuted it that there is an R-rated version of this that we can't show. This is the edited version. And that blew my little 10-year-old mind. So I had to find, this was my first pre-internet where I was like, now I've got to somehow, from Johnson City, Tennessee, track down <laughs> the R-rated version of Girls on Film. Oh, really? How did you do that? Um, I don't remember how, but I did do it, and it was amazing for me, so um, I have, this record has a place in my heart. 
But I will say this to defend them a little bit. So what was going on in Britain at the time was they were right in this, the throes of Margaret Thatcher. Uh-huh. Um, everything was brown and dirty and black and, and awful and cold, mm-hmm. and nobody had jobs. They were political by doing escapism. That was the point. Um, there's a great uh, behind the music that about Duran Duran on Amazon that goes through the first three records. And they, they purposely on this first record were like, let's wear the most colorful, crazy outfits to give people out there in England like, what the fuck? Can we even do this? Because everything was so drab and bland. Also, I, I want to say in defense of this record, the only reason that all the stuff that you think is Duran Duran on Rio happened was because this record was so popular, they were allowed to go on vacation and they took a dude with them who decided to make those videos is that where of them the in the Caribbean. From? They were on vacation from this record. See, like, But the cool thing about that was they were in on the joke. They were like, here are these five pasty white dudes traipsing around with these big spiky hairdos in Central America. And people go, what the fuck is going on? Riding elephants and shit. And but they still looked, all of them were good looking. And so they looked cool. But they're from Birmingham, England. They're not even from London, okay? These <laughs> dudes are like, they, they, they projected an image, uh-huh. but the image was the political statement, I guess is what I'm saying. I see. So you picked up on it, but I think it was more of a statement than, than they were giving credit for. I think on Listening this back, too, I wanted to make one more comparison. All right. I think this record travels more in the realms of psychedelic furs than um, Juju. I think they were doing. Oh, no doubt. I think they were doing the same thing psychedelic furs were doing, trying to be careerist, and they nailed it. <laughs> the psychedelic furs did not. Tried. These guys that's nailed it. That's a good it. point. The first three records by Duran Duran to me nail it, and then they just the drop problem, off the map. And, and my notes say this: it, as I listen now, it just it's a, it's naked ambition. It hang it, it wears it here for me. I can't help it. I can't. I cannot. Divorce myself from what uh, other which which by the from way that. from where we come from in the nineties naked ambition is a dirty word yeah when you're living in the middle of Thatcherite Britain Maybe naked ambition not. is showing people we can do this shit yeah. is pretty much a political statement which I'm afraid I'm hoping we don't get there with Trump America but interesting like I, to well, me it was like that is the statement but but like at first they were like if you look at the cover. It looks way more. It's more Adam and the Ants than it is Roxy Music. Well, right? I also wanted to say this about it too. Yeah, so, you're right. But but um, one of the Taylors. There's about a million Taylors in the band, and they're not related. Right, uh, John <laughs> Taylor, the bass player. So, I think he's my favorite one. Well, he is the. I think he's my. He's guy. the musical genius yeah. in my mind. So he basically said all the songs on this first record are bass riffs that he came up with and they elaborate on, mm-hmm. but. His whole goal was to be in chic. Yeah. So what what this what Duran Duran sounds like to me is Bowie mixed with chic. It's funky. Like mm-hmm. you listen to those bass lines, it's, those are funk bass lines, but with the glam aspect of Bowie. So I think mm-hmm. that to me made it more interesting than Psychedelic Furs because they're just trying to be post-punk. These guys are like, who is doing chic mixed with Bowie? Yeah. So I've said all of this about the album proper. This is the beginning to track 10 or whatever it was on the Duran Duran 
album. On Spotify, you can hear their uh, the other stuff, the stuff that they didn't that they rejected, or the stuff that they recorded in some place called Air Studios. And if you hear that version of Girls on Film, you'll be like, "Oh, they were a real like, they were a real band." Right? They didn't. Um, th- this that re- that version of the song was dissonant, kind of. It had it had all the the sweet spiky bits I like of that kind of music. So they were at once that, but they got um, crafted uh, right on right. the way. And that's either good or bad, depending on how you look at music. You know. Um, I'm going to actually side with it was good. I normally would not. I would agree with you. But I yeah. think because um, just knowing Look. that they were one of my bands, mm-hmm. that trying to mix funk, like being a serious uh-huh. student of funk, and then trying to mix that with New Wave is such an interesting idea to me. It never held. By Seven and the Ragged Tiger, they had gone to me, kind of to the birds. Mm-hmm. But those first couple records, and, and by the way, I... I'm going to spill the beans now. I think Rio is a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's record. just like they're at the top of their whatever their shit is. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I... I Down I'm to that definitely, poster on the front. I yeah. definitely would recommend this record. I don't think you will, but I'm no. going to recommend it. No, I won't. I say if you're going to listen to Duran Duran, uh, listen to Rio. Um, but, you know, they they have my, uh, my sympathies. I mean, it, here we're looking at two different things. Like, ambition on its face, I hit them for on Duran Duran, lack of ambition from Al Jarreau, I hit him for. So I can't have it both ways, can I, Chris? I feel like you can't, and I also feel like... I'm uh, kind of fucked either way. Ambition, when you live in a place that is so bleak, is is a positive attribute. So, man, a lot of interesting stuff this month. A lot of stuff to to wrestle through. I can't wait to hear what Megan's got to say about it, too, because I'm sure she's going to have an opinion. Let's, Let's check out what she's got. Please. Hey there, it's Megan here with my pick for our June 1981 Part 1 episode. Um, We are splitting this month up into two parts just because there were so many great records to choose from. And for me, I had to really pick for this particular episode, Talk 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 by The Psychedelic Furs, because this album just has a really special place in my heart. It was actually one of the first records that I bought um, on vinyl when I was 14, and I had just started buying vinyl records. And they were definitely one of the first bands that got me into um, 80s new wave and post-punk, probably in part due to the Pretty in Pink movie, um, which is, of course, you know, the song that was featured in the film. Um, Even even though the Psychedelic Furs, they're not one of my favorite bands, but like I said, they just really opened up that world for me. And ever since, I've really just been in love with those genres of music and, of course, John Hughes movies. Um, I I find it kind of funny that the song really isn't a flattering one. Uh, It's actually, at least to me, it sounds like it's about a girl that sleeps around and kind of uses that to define herself. And she doesn't really realize that the people that she's like giving herself so freely to don't really like care about her or seem to respect her. But Pretty in Pink is a great title, so I don't really blame them for using it for the movie. Um, my favorite song off this record is actually Into You Like a Train. So not even the song they're probably best known for. 
anyway, so um, we do have social media, so follow us. We want to hear from you. If you have albums that you want us to cover or anything that you feel like we should have mentioned in a previous episode, let us know. Um, we're on Twitter at 80s Exposed, Instagram at 80s374, and 80s Music Exposed on Facebook and Patreon. Um, if you don't want to support us monetarily through our Patreon, that's fine. Just, you know, maybe rate us or review us. We'd be happy to hear from you. And we just want to, you know, make sure that you're enjoying the show. Feel free to also follow me. Um, I'm on Instagram at BastardsOfYoung92 because I love the replacements. Um, I'm looking forward to as we get into the 80s, we're going to have some replacement albums to cover. So that'll be cool. And I'm also on Facebook at um, Megan Maddox, so M-A-D-D-O-X. But anyway, thank you so much for listening, and stay rad. You know, we used to do a podcast in which we talked about more modern music, and um, but, you know, f- folks really seemed to like us talking about albums from the 80s a bit, but I couldn't let this opportunity go by without uh, mentioning that I was very sad to hear of the death of uh, David Berman, uh, who put out a record um, called Purple Mountain uh, and uh, passed away. We don't know why. Uh, all indications seem that maybe it was suicide. No, they've, they've come out right. today. Uh, they, they, he hung himself. Ouch. Yes, it was suicide. So um, uh, he had, from what I understand, he tried to kill himself about 10 years ago. Uh, anyway, you sent me this record, and it was, did such a great job of, like, nailing some middle-aged malaise that all of us go through and those feelings. And um, I just wanted to uh, express my uh, sadness over his passing. Yeah, and I also want to say, if you're, if you're trying to check out David Berman, um, also, he was known for a band called Silver Jews that he did in the 90s, and they put out some great records. Um, Steve Malcolmus was also in Silver Jews uh, from Pavement. So That's the, that's the Pavement connection there. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's, it's really sad. I, I, what struck me was that I was so shocked by it because listening to his albums, you can just hear the... He's one of those guys you can just be like, yeah... What, why did it shock me that this this guy sounds sad and but he yeah. but in a way that like explores it and yeah. like nails it for you like like yeah yeah like I was working out in my shed you know having middle aged man thoughts right right that's what we do and he nails them down and they, he's in my ears and like articulating those those ideas yep. so well it's he, one of the lines he says was it's it's down to margaritas at the mall that's all it ever meant after all or something like that right. And that really touched me. And uh, I'm so sorry that he felt like he had to off himself. He must have been in terrible pain. Yep. R.I.P. David Berman. Uh, rest in peace. Henry, what is your... So, pick of the month. Pick of the month. <laughs> Big fucking surprise. It's going to be Juju by Susie and the Banshees. I knew it. I mean, damn. I haven't been this happy about any of the records we listened until... Stumbling upon that, I'm so I'm almost glad that I didn't hear it to when we were coming through music, so that I could have something new here to talk about um, now. Yeah, so. I thought it was great. I'm actually going to go in a different direction. I'm going to go with Al Jarreau's "Breaking Away." <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. I'm going to go with "Juju" by Susie and the Banshees as well. Um, although I will say, I really think you should check out the Yoko Ono record, but. 
Man, Juju to me is a is an eighties classic. I mean, you you got to you got to check this one out. Amen. Many thanks to our show producer Greg Levin. If you like the way that we sound, you can talk to him at Urban Dweller on Instagram. That's U R B N D W E L L R. We're thankful to have him on our team. Also, thanks to Megan, our social media maven. So if you want to start a social media argument with us, you'll probably be arguing with her. Any save rounds? Nope. Chris, guess what? What? I made you a mixtape. <laughs>